Welcome back to Loserville, folks. Um, coming to you from temporary quarters while Kingston Manor is being renovated. I have great Tyler Wade with me. Happy to be with you here, Philip. Have you seen any F-35s flying around uh, Dallas today? Um, did anybody check the air tag? <laughs> did you see that that there has been a general um, grounding of all military aviation worldwide, U.S. military aviation? Until we can find it. I did not see that, no. Mm -hmm. um, the speculation is that there may the plane may have been hacked. Oh, good. Because mine, like, it can't, I don't know. I'm like, I presume it doesn't have an unlimited fuel source that we don't know of, so it's presumably not still flying, right? Well, <laughs> what was the hack? That's, uh, yeah, true. Is it ransomware? Mm, wow, we could have to pay off whoever is uh, holding our expensive plane hostage. Indeed. My favorite was the tweet with the 800 number to call if anybody's seen a plane. That, yeah. That seems like a new low for the government to have to be like, <laughs> hey, everyone, if you've seen our multi-million dollar plane, give us a call. Let us know. Thanks. I noticed uh, last episode we had quite a bit of ambient noise. We were also joined by Wiley H. Dallas, my uh, blue healer, um, who loves Tyler very much. Um, and so you may hear him. He's an old man and he makes old man noises. <laughs> and the commissioner is in and out of our temporary space. It's not huge. So she's still using a wheelie cart a little bit. So. We just want people to feel like they're authentically sitting around a kitchen table talking And, and the kitchen folks. table in this case is a, uh, <laughs> a plastic folding <laughs> table. <laughs> We're just real folks here like everybody else. <laughs> it's a, you know, the, uh, the coffee table is a, is a wire spool. And <laughs> what are the other great apartment hacks that we used to do? Milk crates. For every form of furniture. Furniture, that's nice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When I went to go buy my new furniture, when I went into my new place, uh, I went to the furniture store and the lady was like, what kind of aesthetic are you trying to go for? And I was like, I'll be honest with you, I haven't really uh, you know, come up with an aesthetic yet. And she goes, what do you have now? And I was like, well, uh, it looks like a single man lives here. You know, there are pieces of furniture that have been acquired <laughs> from various yard sales and parts of life, so I just want it to match. Things should just match at a minimum. So she laughed and then was able to help me. Yeah. <laughs> Man, all kind, anything happened since we recorded our last podcast? Um, yeah, lots of stuff that I'm not allowed to talk about on the litigation. Um, apparently, I'm infuriating. Well, that's an adjective that I think has probably been used to describe you <laughs> sometimes. I feel like I'm so friendly. I just don't know how people get so bent out of shape. Uh, you know, we always touch on, we focus on primarily Dallas County and local politics, but obviously the big story in Texas in the last couple of weeks was the Paxton uh, impeachment show trial uh, that saw its really exciting conclusion on Saturday in which our esteemed attorney general was uh, acquitted of 16 of the 20 articles of impeachment that the House had brought against him. Um, I don't know about you, Philip. I wasn't really surprised by the outcome, uh, given how hyperpartisan the Texas Senate seems to be or is, right? Um, and 
I think you started, you know, for the most part, it sort of felt like that Dan Patrick had done I don't know, a quasi decent job of being somewhat fair in the process. And then sort of at the end, um, you know, I, I think you could ask some legitimate questions about a number of decisions that they had made. You know, for one, we said 16 of 20 because the four impeachment counts that were tied to the securities fraud that Paxson has pretty much at this point like admitted to, they just did not consider at all, which seems... On the theory that he's going to trial on those soon? At some other point. And therefore, they it's not the right forum for it? That's fucking bullshit. Well, and then the vote that they took at the end, it wasn't like they held them in reserve, right? The vote that they took at the end was just to dismiss all of them. Yep. And so presumably, I guess, if he is convicted on those securities fraud charges, they would have to impeach him again? Is that the... Yes. That was strange to me. Um, yes, that's it. They, they yeah. would, and, and there would be no way to do it yeah. because the House has to impeach. Yes. Yeah. Unless the governor called a special session to impeach the attorney general. Which seems unlikely, probably. Um, so that was strange. I think... You know, this weird sort of line that the lieutenant governor tried to walk between, you know, saying, well, it's really a political trial. It's not a criminal file trial, but then... He's right about that. And he was right about that. But then some of the decisions that they made that would have been more in line with what a criminal trial would be, you know, i.e. not allowing the House impeachment managers to call Paxton to testify against himself, which again, I guess he could say he took the fifth when it comes to the possible legal trials he faces elsewhere, but you know, odd that they allowed not him even allowing them to call to call him, him seems strange, right? At least to have him do that. Um, the mistress, um, right, um, was also uh, allowed to not appear, um, Laura Olson, um, because she said she was going to plead the fifth, which I also don't understand why the mistress would have any crimes to uh, maybe uh, misappropriation of public funds. Yeah, I mean, she was working a job for Nate Paul that paid $65,000 a year and was photographed carrying around a Balenciaga handbag, which I would assume not many people who make $65,000 a year own expensive handbags like that. But well, I could yeah, be wrong. And there's expensive and then there's expensive, right? Yeah. <laughs> She's, she's, she's going toward the upper end. The upper end of the expensive handbag. So that was strange. And so I think this weird sort of mix of like, well, we kind of pick and choose when we want to apply these sort of criminal standards to the trial was questionable. And then whatever goodwill that, that Dan Patrick had built up throughout presiding over the trial, basically threw all of that out the window when after all of the votes are taken, he launches into this tirade of explaining exactly why the impeachment was dead on arrival when it got to the Senate in the first place because he hates Dade Phelan and the people that he calls rhinos in the Texas House and how in his mind they sort of ran this whole thing through in, in a way that I guess we were supposed to believe that he wrote that entire tirade in the five minutes it took for them to finish voting and when he started speaking uh, to record his thoughts in the, he kept saying what to record our thoughts about this in the journal so that when future impeachment trials happen, they'll be able to look upon folks' comments on this one and have better direction than what they felt like they were given from 
the Ferguson trial. I feel like his, his the record, the written transcript of this uh, impeachment trial will be a stark example of what not to do. You know, there was this strange two moment where it was it Thursday or Friday when Rusty Harden mistakenly rested the prosecution's case. And I feel like, and again, I don't, I'm not an attorney, so Philip, you'll have to answer this question. If you were to have mistakenly done that in a trial, I don't think that they would just be like, well, you said it and you're done. Is that fair? Um, this actually happens somewhat frequently. Yeah. And it depends on the judge and his or her um, inclination toward you at that moment. And also sometimes on your opposing counsel's uh, agreement, you know, yeah, it, it happens. And if I'm always of the opinion that the judge and the jury want to decide the case on all of the evidence. And so if somebody accidentally rests and then says, Oh, judge, can I reopen? Yeah. And I'm the opposing counsel. I'm going to say no objection. Yeah. Um, I know there are lawyers who would take the opposite tack, but um, I'm right. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I also don't know how many criminal trials where the judge uh, threatens the jury and is like, we just won't let you go home if you aren't done with this by Sunday at all. Or go back to the hotel or leave. That's actually more like real court. <laughs> they don't lock you in the courthouse though. You get to like eat meals and you do uh, and go but, to bed, right? But, but <laughs> the idea that uh, the judge at certain times with a jury, yeah. particularly a federal judge, an elected judge is less likely to do this, but federal judge with a jury is probably going to do some prodding if, if he or she thinks that the jury could use some. You had the whole weird episode where he said that they were supposed to stay there until 8 o'clock Friday night and then they all left at like 6.30. Yeah. <laughs> Which seems very strange to me. Uh, it doesn't to me. I think that's easily explainable by the senators could tell that there was no the chance of reaching an, a, you know, a, fi a final set of votes that evening. And so they were like, why am I here? Bye. So staying. Well, and then you, you saw. You got to remember, these people make seventy two hundred dollars a year. Yeah. So every day that they're there past the regular session, not working in their is jobs, exceptionally annoying. Yeah. Um, then um, you know, so yeah, Paxton gets off again. We weren't surprised. I wasn't surprised. I don't know if, if you were surprised by that. I'm a little surprised because. When I first saw that they were going to take up impeachment, I'm like, what, why is Dave wasting his time? And the answer to that turned out to be that he was actually responding to his caucus. Um, Over 70% of Republicans in the House voted for impeachment. Right? Well, and, and he had loud voices, particularly because they had to pass a budget. You know, they had, he had loud voices telling him, Look, we're tired of this guy. This is really corrupt, and there's no way my my constituents will pay for this guy's legal mess, which is there's an employment law reason why the state should pay the settlement with the whistleblowers, mm -hmm. um, but it's not one that uh, a House of Representatives member could sell to the actual taxpayers. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's no, but nobody wants it, that outcome. Yeah. So that was understandable. 
Then, but I, I initially thought, you know, they're, they just, they can't get the votes in the Senate. There's no way you, I mean, you only have to have 10 vote to acquit and you're, you're, you're done. Right. Um, and, uh, would that, would that be the same if they had allowed Angela to vote? Uh, what there are nine, it's 19 to 12. Yeah. Cause you have to have two thirds plus one. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, um, I thought there's no fucking way. And then I started to get signals from our, we have an Austin source who is a real live lobbyist. And so he does mm -hmm. not want to be identified yeah, no, on Loserville. Yeah. Um, I asked him to come on the show one time and then we would like disguise his voice and not name him. And he's like, yeah, absolutely not. <laughs> he actually didn't even respond. Um, but he gives us signals. And uh, the signal was the, that the House members, or maybe Phelan himself, had worked the Senate and felt like there was a real chance. Um, what what I think what I think nobody could have known. Maybe the senators do know this. Maybe they saw this coming. Is that it appears that in addition to making some weird rulings, um, uh, Patrick also seems to have been actively working the vote behind the scenes, um, and so that's. That kind of sucks, you know? I mean, he obviously wasn't unbiased. He obviously shouldn't have been a presiding juror for purposes of, I mean, he's both presiding juror and judge, essentially. Yeah. He shouldn't have had that position. Obviously, the, the money Paxton owed him was interesting, and then the $3 million he got from Paxton supporters. Was, and then to fire the originally appointed counsel over a, what, $250 donation to yes. Ava Guzman's campaign? Yes. I mean, it's... Yeah, you know, it's so the part that's not surprising is uh, Patrick sucks. Yeah. That's been well established. It, the part that is surprising is the new creative ways he's coming up with to suck. <laughs> um, and so that it's all very disappointing because it's clear. I think it's relatively clear that if Patrick even had just behaved as a neutral, that you would have either gotten a conviction on one or more counts or you would gotten so much closer that well for one thing the republican party at that point could have looked a little bit better looked yeah. less like it was just a nakedly trying to preserve power um but i think honestly what i think is that the tide may have turned after the House sent the articles over and Patrick and maybe some others started working it. Now, I'm a, I'm a person who believes that Paxton doesn't actually have any strong support within the Republican Party. Um, he's got some heavy duty contributors yeah. who are all fall in the same category. They're people who financially benefit from Ken Paxton. Um, so it's all, it's really as crooked as it can possibly be. But generally when you're down to those people as friends, that, you know, those aren't voters. Yeah. Those aren't, you know, Dan Patrick doesn't have anything to gain by that. I think what Patrick gained was that he allowed Ken to twist pretty good, yeah. right? Um, the way that Tony Busby was trying this case was an indication that neither he nor... Paxton had 
any confidence that Patrick was going to help them. Yeah. They, I think they felt like they were being dangled. Yeah, railroaded. And, and yeah. so now is this just Patrick owns Ken Paxton? I, th- I think that's the outcome. That's we're, what we're you at. think Patrick's thinking anyway, which I would, I don't know. It's the, hard to figure out that calculus because I would think if Dan Patrick has um, ambitions beyond being lieutenant governor. And why would he? You know, uh, yeah, I mean, he's the most powerful person in Texas. By a long way. Right? Uh, More powerful than the governor. If the governor had more charisma and was a little smarter strategically, he could outflank Dan Patrick because nobody likes Dan Patrick, you know? So you look at, you know, if, because I could see that if if Patrick was going to run for another office and sees that Paxton would be a rival for that, you know, why not take out an opponent if you have the opportunity to do it? Um, But... But nobody considers Paxton to have any political future. Well, that's not what Gromer wrote about in the morning news today. I don't, I I mean, (laughs) I can't say this enough, how much I like and respect Gromer. Yeah. And the last four or five things he's written about state government, which have all been legislated, I think have just been wrong. So in Gromer's article this morning, right, talked about feeling like in his mind, he felt like Paxton would be emboldened now to possibly run against John Cornyn in 26 or run for governor against Abbott if Abbott were to go for a fourth term, which would also be in 26. Well, Uh, I think Gromer's right about one thing. I think Paxton may try to do that. Yeah. I think Paxton's not winning that primary. Probably either one, right? Especially if John Cornyn is majority Senate majority leader at that time, right? I don't see him losing. Probably, right? I um, think that, I, honestly, I think the chances of him being majority leader are very low. I think he he would be minority leader, possibly. Well, okay, yeah, but the leader of the yeah yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know those sorts of things were interesting. Um, I had listened to some of uh, Texas Take uh, with Jeremy Wallace and Scott Braddock. Which is fucking phenomenal. Really good if you don't podcast. Li- if you don't listen to that podcast, please listen yeah. to that podcast. It's a good one. If, if just all you have to do is look, scroll back through um, Republican leadership tweets about Scott Braddock. Yeah, they hate him. And you can know how effective that guy is. Well, it was interesting to see. So it was some reporting that I saw, and I think Nathan Johnson and Royce West also said this, that they felt like they were 18 to 20 votes to convict. And then once it became clear that they weren't going to get to 21, that there were Republicans who then decided, I think that's exactly I don't need right. to stick my neck out for this unnecessarily. Right? I think that's exactly right. And yeah. when the first vote came down, yeah. you know, and the other thing is, you could have taken the articles in any order, I think. I think they were allowed to read Well, I don't know why the impeachment, yeah, and the impeachment managers, to me, I don't know, if I'm writing, I would, and maybe they did it chronologically, I think I would have made my strongest case Article 1, mm-hmm. and reading them, it was more like Article 8, 9, 10, mm-hmm. 11 were the really serious ones, in right. my opinion, uh, which I, I thought was sort of a strange choice on their, on their part. Um, the other thing that, and, and we don't need to be labor folks because there's other people smarter than us that talk about it, but that I don't really feel like... Uh, I, but, I, I don't know that that's entirely true. <laughs> Scott Braddock, maybe, is one. Uh, that Busby, um, in the defense, I don't feel like did it really, really even at all attempted to dispute any of the facts of the case. It Not was really. more arguing about process 
and rhinos and liberals trying to take down Ken Paxton. Um, and so I think that was... And that kind of dovetails with Patrick's instruction yeah. that their job is not to determine whether it was true, yeah. but to determine whether it was removable, mm -hmm. which is always true in an impeachment vote, a trial, yeah. an impeachment trial, but it's something that you shouldn't fucking say. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you know, and, and again, you know, does this then condone, and clearly it does, right, for future times, the behavior of, you know, having the top attorneys and the top law enforcement official of the state essentially running a concierge law service for a political donor who happened to be concealing an affair, then uh, that's just a behavior that we deem to be just totally fine and acceptable, which seems not great. Now, the thing, and Jeremy Wallace said well, this. it seems not great unless... You're the party Correct. giving the concierge service to yeah. your big contributors. That seems actually kind of cool. <laughs> the thing that Wallace, I thought, pointed out too in his podcast that I thought was a good point, he talked about how not feeling like the House impeachment managers did a good enough job of connecting the dots um, of to exactly like what state business was not being done because Paxton and the AG staff were pursuing working on Nepal's behalf, um, you know, what, you know, were there seniors that were being abused, you know, what consumer financial protections well, but fell, or even maybe more for that audience, how many illegal immigrants, right, came into the country uh, and how much more could Ken Paxton have been fighting against the Biden administration if he weren't so worried about helping out his Fun, now, now you've refined the argument. But <laughs> right. the, the idea that seniors weren't being protected from phone scammers, look, that hasn't happened in the state of Texas <laughs> since Dan Morales was attorney general. And he went to prison. Yes. <laughs> um, so, you know, Republicans do not fucking care about yeah. seniors getting scammed. Now, you would think that those voters are Republicans, so yes. you would think they would care a little bit more, but obviously, you know, with COVID, we, we've learned that they don't even care if they live, so whatever. <laughs> I just, I, I don't know. The whole thing is a tawdry mess, and just the one thing that I think is a bright spot is that I think, and I am very willing to accept any criticism that you would care to email or DM us, about my feelings about Paxton's chances in 2022. I was, I was clearly oh, quite wrong. Yeah, yeah. But is he really vulnerable in 2026? I kind of think so. With all the dirty laundry out there now. Yeah, maybe more so than he, yeah, before than he was before this. It didn't seem and like what we this... know is that there is there is an undisclosed federal investigation ongoing yeah. that has never been revealed other than the fact that it exists. Yeah. We don't know what it's about. Everyone assumes it's about Nate Paul, but we don't know. Yeah. It could be anything. Yeah. And that will... Now, it is. it is sometimes happens, very rarely, that the FBI reveals that they are investigating someone and then never brings any charges. Mm. That Hillary does... Clinton. Yeah. <laughs> that, it happens, but it's rare. It's yeah. really rare. So no one would per se do that on like the Monday before presidential election. No, or not Friday at all. Presidential nope, election. Not at all. Um, so the uh, uh, 
I think there is no question that the federal investigation will either vaporize or be fully brought into the light before that next election. And so, um, you know, the feds are not very, or even at all, uh, subject to state level political influence. And so if they, if they want to get you, they're going to get you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, also be interesting to see, I think, what impact this has, not only within sort of the, the civil war within the Texas Republican Party, but maybe more immediately, you know, the governor still has made it clear that he plans to call a special session on school vouchers in October. And, I, you know, the House was already not likely to go along with the voucher plan because of the sort of the dynamics there. But I can't imagine Dave Phelan and Dan Patrick coming together on anything in a month from now. Did you see Phelan's response? Yes. Yeah. That, yeah. he, I don't, it's funny. I talk a lot about Dade Phelan because I'm a, I am a fascinated observer of Dade Phelan. So I don't want it to sound like he and I are friends or that even that we, that he knows who I am. He doesn't <laughs> know who I am. Um, but I am fascinated with Dade Phelan and I follow him very closely. And he is a guy who can, behind the scenes, definitely use strong language. Um, yeah. But in his public statements, that's a first for him. Yeah. He never loses he it off. publicly. Yeah. Yeah. Went off in his statement. So, you know, you almost wonder if you're Abbott then, and I know that he feels pressured to do this, but man, I would almost just not even call that special session in October. Until, oh, he's gonna. But he's going to anyway, yeah. right? But it and would we'll just, just be see. a tremendous waste of time. And my, I think. I, I think it's be, gonna be a tremendous waste I of time. I could be wrong, um, because it does not seem like Dave Phelan and Dan Patrick are, uh, I mean, they already weren't talking to each other before all of this very often, right? That came but the out other, the the other thing that nobody in, in Republican leadership seems to be, except for Dave Phelan, seems to be acknowledging is that the resistance to a voucher plan in the House is grassroots. Yeah, it's not. It's not that Dave Phelan is like trying to turn the state blue. Yeah, I mean that's the farthest thing from the truth. Listen, you know, listen to Tony Busby, but yeah, or Mark Davis and Mark Davis. Fucking, <laughs> I mean, Jesus Christ! If the FCC still <laughs> regulated lying. Wait. That guy couldn't work in radio for the rest of his life. Um, but in any case, I, I just, I think that there's no way, if Balin is responding to his caucus. He is not a top-down leader the way Dan Patrick can be in the Senate. Yeah. He doesn't have their balls in a jar. He's got to please the people who elect him, and they're telling him absolutely fucking not. And that charge is being led by rural, rural Republicans. Republicans. Right that don't have private schools that their kids can go to and would like their Well, and see this as a, as a direct shift of their people's money to the suburbs. Yeah. Places that they don't like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it will be interesting to see and follow where that, that goes, but that's uh, Tyler and Philip on impeachment talk. Okay, we went about 27 minutes on that. If you find that Scott Braddock did a better job in a shorter period of time. <laughs> you, you may, in fact, clown on us, but I don't. I don't think you're going to find a better 27 minutes of of distillation of what just happened. <laughs> that was good, pretty tight. Other things that came out while we were gone um, or over the break. 
there was an interesting break. What we call laziness. Lazy. We, don't we didn't record. <laughs> uh, there was a really interesting article that was published around Labor Day in the Dallas Morning News, where Renee Hall was talking about. Uh, so former Dallas Police Chief Renee Hall was responding to some of the uh, allegations that have been brought to light by the Morning News's Black and Blue series of police brutality. Um, she is currently apparently working in Washington. Um, as a policing consultant and board member of the National Organization of Black Law Enforcement Executives. So we now know what that other National exciting other opportunity. Association of Black Law Enforcement Noble. Executives. Noble. E. Noble. Nabla. Na <laughs> um, but was basically saying, she was very critical about the Dallas Police Department, which was interesting given the fact that she was the one in charge of the Dallas Police Department. And many, many of the examples cited in the morning news are her fault, like directly her fault. So, you know, she said, quote, to be a legitimate police department, you have to have accountability and transparency. What mayor, what government, what city official doesn't want their police department to operate with best practices? What are you saying as a city official when you can't say that? And sort of going on to talk about, um, you know, some of the... I guess, ways in which the Dallas Police Department is not living up to DOJ guidelines for policing. But again, if you were the police chief, you know, if only you could have been the person to bring some of those things into This is a person who got on the radio to every patrol officer on the second night of the George Floyd protests in Dallas and encouraged violence. And honestly, I one day I will be able to sit down at Louis with John Cruzo, and I will ask him: Was was that not a crime? Yeah, Did, was that. that not worth examining? She because people got hurt. People legitimately got, got hurt. Somebody lost their vision. Well, not right? not that night, yeah. but the the that was the night of the kettling, kettling onto the on the bridge, and people yeah. got. Hurt ninety some odd degree because weather. the leader of the Dallas Police Department violated every use of force policy that we have and actively encouraged violence. Yeah. And so this is not a person that I feel real chill about. Um, I I didn't like her from some other interactions as well, but that that one is uh, I don't know, man. I think she's a criminal. I I don't I I. It's not just that I think she was a bad manager. She did some really bad shit. It, which is not great. Now, she basically says that she would have done more had it not been for Mike Mata and the police union. And that she had a desire well, okay, to put so some it, of these best practices. Handy punching bag. Uh, she's not wrong. Yeah. Um, so that was interesting. But then that is followed by, so her criticism is followed by Tanya McClary announcing that she is leaving the city effective September 21st was the person who was with the initial um, this Dallas city staffer in charge of the police oversight process. Tanya, I like. Um, the, the overall criticism of both the police oversight board and her and her department has been ineffectiveness. But I would I would call the ineffectiveness predictable based on the structure, based on the regulatory authority that they have and based on the structure of the, 
the board. And I, you know, I was heavily involved in like developing this and voting for it and all that and went to the community meetings and saw the bullshit. Um, and in some ways it was set up to fail, but in other ways, the, the chiefs since then, Brown, Hall, Garcia, have all failed to support the work of the board. Um, they could, with a very simple memo, start making officers have to participate in the proceedings. And by the way, these proceedings are not meant to, like... Play gotcha with no. officers. In fact, more often than not, once they evaluate the evidence that went into the internal investigation, the internal affairs investigation, they find that the evidence makes the police officer look even better, you know? So it's this is this is so many missed opportunities for what the board was supposed to accomplish, which is the questions about its name are answered in its name. Mm -hmm. The community police oversight board. The idea is to create some relationship between the two where the allegation currently is that there isn't any relationship between the two or that it's very problematic. And I think, you know. I think that's hard to argue with. And so I, I wish Tanya well. Um, it will be interesting to see who they hire to replace her and whether TC asks the board's opinion about who it wants as the next director, which I think he should. And they, in the interim, they did appoint someone, Elaine Chandler, the interim replacement, um, who is someone that was coming over from the HR uh, department. Uh, I read that in the in the news. The other thing that I thought was interesting about uh, employee relations manager in the city's human races department since 2019, Elaine Chandler, currently in charge of it. Um, you know, it also mentioned, and I had almost forgotten about this when uh, Chief Garcia was basically critical of members of that board and saying that they needed to like put they needed to gain police officers' trust before that they would be like respected or listened to or... And we may have even commented at the time that that seemed to be really like the reverse of what should happen. Yeah, right. And I think, again, to your point, the assumption uh, of that it's you're developing relations and trying to massage that process. And I think it almost is seen by folks as they're just there to... I don't know, uh, try to find, make cops look bad, as you had mentioned, um, when it seemed like the scope is much bigger than, than that. Well, and, the, and their words, their own like uh, mission statement and the, the, the policy pronouncements that the board has made would not lead any normal police officer to think that that was a place that was out to get police officers. Yeah, yeah. So the other thing about that story um, the, the morning news story, when I, I, I have a visceral reaction to any time Renee Hall talks, so, um, and I think I earned it. I, I don't think I'm wrong, but uh, I did see that, and my, my immediate thought was, who was the bonehead who made the editorial decision to call Renee fucking Hall <laughs> about police misconduct in her own goddamn department? Yeah. Um, and... <clears throat> The, one of the authors of that piece, Miles Moffitt, a longtime reporter for the Dallas Morning News and one who's not one of the better ones, um, took offense at that and um, 
uh, tweeted that he had some real questions about some things that went on while I was on council and he'd be in touch. Okay. Uh, to which I said something not exactly quaking in my boots for fear. Um, I don't know what that guy's problem is. Interesting. Has he been in touch? He has not been in touch, no. which is typical of him. He has claimed many times in the past that he called me for comment and that I did not return his call. And I am here to tell you, I have never in my life yeah. received a request for communication from Miles Moffitt. Well, and I mean, you notice, noticeably, people definitely are like, Philip doesn't. Yeah, I never, I never call back. <laughs> uh, it was just interesting. Like, do you think anyone in Dallas really gives a shit what I think? I mean, maybe in an entertainment medium like this one. Yeah. But no, I mean, what the hell? Like, that seems like and, a strange. And, and why would I, a person who has been out of office for a minute, really give a shit if anyone wants to investigate what happened when I was on council? Most of it's real fucking boring. Yeah, that's yeah, it tends to be the case with those those sorts of things. Well, I, I look forward to his phone call of you. Yeah. And the and, and the the sure to be upcoming riveting story <laughs> about a busted ass retired politician who doesn't like do anything. <laughs> <laughs> um that uh, departure from police oversight, also two other departures from city hall uh, or city staff. Uh, that have happened. So uh, City Planning Director Julia Ryan and Housing Director David Noera are both leaving their positions uh, immediately, almost immediately. Noguera. Noguera, sorry. Uh, Julia Ryan leaving September 20th, Noguera leaving September 22nd. That was released on the uh, uh, famous Friday Night Memo. Oh yeah. Friday Memo's wonderful. <laughs> the good Friday at 6 o'clock Hey, by the way, two people are leaving. <laughs> Where, where's the graveyard for the news? <laughs> uh, any comment that you have on this, Philip? Uh, well, uh, Julia Ryan was almost universally unliked, not just with... Um, uh, she was in a department that obviously has been very heavily criticized for impeding development in the city. Um, I can say from experience that she was a integral part of impeding development in the city, uh, but also among coworkers, she is an enormously unpleasant person. Um, I just I don't know why people like this seem to persist in workplaces. Like the coworker who just seems to want to make everything bad. I don't get it. Um, in any case. Um, she will not be missed. There's an enormous opportunity in the, the role that she leaves vacant to really improve that department. Um, she's apparently going private sector. Um, the story she's telling is that it's closer to her family and that it's a lot more money. And both of those things might be extremely true. Um, so, um, I mean, I don't wish her ill by any stretch of the imagination, but if, you know, if, if some people are more pissed at her than I am, then I don't have any real beef with them. Um, Noguera is going to HUD in Florida. Um, this, according to him, is the result of stress. 
and being really tired. That was um, I, that was my favorite part of this was he's leaving to take over the Miami field office of HUD. Which sounds very peaceful. Because the job that he was currently in requires your complete attention and you've got to have energy and time to give it. At this point in my life, I'm just tired. And I think it's time to pass the torch to someone that can make sure that it continues to get the attention it deserves. Uh, so Miami, I guess you're out of luck if you're trying to develop affordable housing in the city of Miami. You know. Well, I don't know. David David supports housing. Yeah, like he has true. good values. Yeah, yeah, he has yeah. good values yes. and all that stuff. And I like David. Um, but um, it just seems like moving to something at the federal level and being like, oh, I was really looking for a job that was less stressful. <laughs> I don't know that that. Well, I think I think one thing David is telling. What for? What just on a personal observation of David is a little bit of a worry wart, and I don't think he would mm. feel offended if I characterized him that way. He does sweat stuff, and he doesn't really he doesn't like criticism. But I think the bigger thing that he's telling us there, which is a thing that I think other director level people at the city will also reveal sometimes inadvertently, is that. They don't always feel supported from above. Mm. Now, some of them will blame that on council, no, not openly or maybe privately. They'll feel like they could be attacked by council for doing stuff that's innovative or whatever. Um, but I think more and more what you're hearing from city staff is that TC is not supporting them in initiatives. And I, I have a very specific example that makes me think that that was David's real deal. The Cypress Creek... Uh, project that I'm still working on, uh, you know, TC gave it to David early this year, and David sent us on this wild goose chase to the Public Facilities Corp, and he had help. I mean, the city attorney was not particularly helpful at that point. They later got much more helpful, so I'm not criticizing them too much, I don't think. Um, but once TC actually, like, sat down and made it his own project, then it was possible for David to move the thing forward. And so that tells me that unless TC is going to be an active participant, that sometimes his lieutenants may either correctly or incorrectly assume that they have power or don't have power based on whether he's actually personally involved. And that's a real hard way to run a big entity if you're chiefly to your department directors, your real high-level people don't feel like they have any autonomy unless you're signing off on the details yeah. of their work. That just seems unworkable to me. That's not good. That's not a good position for anybody to be in uh, as somebody who's being managed to feel like you don't have that authority. I tell the people I supervise that all the time. Unless it involves like people bleeding or spending more than X number of dollars, just do it. And if it wasn't what I would do, we'll talk about it. But... Well, and I am a self-admitted real bad manager, yeah. so I'm not. I'm not here to. All I can do is to give people my observations because yeah. I certainly don't know how to run a city. Um, but in any case, uh, the people working under David are pretty, um, pretty good. Um, I heard that I forget this person's last name, but the, there's a one of. David's lieutenants is named Thor, and he's going to be the interim. Thor. Um, and that's good. He's good. Um, there are several other good ones in that department, and I think that there's a real good chance that 
housing, which has not been a bad department in the city of Dallas, they've actually started to you know, develop real units, like yeah. affordable units, uh, could get even better. So overall, the news is just kind of good. But there is an interesting uh, potential reason why David's exit was at least hastened. Um, the uh, Dallas Housing Finance Corporation, uh, DHFC has existed for a long time, but we overhauled it in 2018. It had become this like utterly useless thing that had no money because previous councils had taken all of its money away because it couldn't be trusted with the money. Um, <clears throat> we rehabbed it. It's it has a very professional board now. It is being executive managed by one of David's. Um, direct reports, a guy named uh, Aaron Iaquinto, uh, who I think is good. And that board is trying to decide what they want in an executive director. That conversation was sparked by David attempting to appoint another one of his direct reports to be the executive director, a guy who already serves as the executive director of a couple of other things. And so the board was sort of questioning, hey, does this guy have enough time to do this? And then it didn't help that that guy uh, had to reschedule a bunch of appointments with board members to interview him. Because there was too much going on. So, um, they, uh, hang on, we we have to take a short break. Okay, we're back. Minor uh, technical problem and uh, drink refill. This uh, episode of Bluesville is also brought to you by Kirkland's very fine uh, Sauvignon Blanc. We love the folks at Costco. And breaking news, while the break happened, the plane has been found. Crashed in a field in South Carolina. Much better than... Hacked by... Hacked by... Foreign agents. Bulgarian (laughs) server farm operators. Um, So... um, the Dallas Housing Finance Corp is the board is trying to determine what it wants in an executive director. And the fact that it didn't just immediately ratify uh, David's choice of one of his assistant directors, but instead was thinking more along the lines of going outside to find an independent person who doesn't work for the city, or simply keeping uh, Aaron Iaquinto caused uh, David to have what has been described to me as a panic attack. Um, there he has had he has apparently induced the city attorney to disrupt now two meetings of the DHFC board, um, <clears throat> trying to convince them that they didn't really have the ability to hire their own person, even though their bylaws are pretty clear that they do. Um, and I think I understand why. It's budget season, right? Yes. So the DHFC has its own budget. It is not within the city budget. So if you're a department director, there's a there's a neat trick that they all do. If you have an outside entity that is related to the city, that you can assign some or all of the compensation for one of your key employees to, then you can cut your budget while keeping uh-huh. all of your people. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And if you have, if you've tried to offload 
the entire compensation for an assistant director, call it $150,000, $175,000, and instead the board is like, ah, we'll keep this guy who makes $100,000, you suddenly have a $75,000 problem that you will be criticized for quite heavily. And I think that that might not be David's only reason for leaving the city, but I think it may have hastened it. Mm. That is an interesting theory. <laughs> it's not even a theory. It's it's on the level of a suspicion. A suspicion. It's just it's a suspicion born of experience. An inference, if you will. Um, other city staffing changes, just to touch on briefly, um, we have a city, well, we have a proposal for the interim tag to be removed from interim city attorney Tammy Palomino's title. There is a recommendation made by the Ad Hoc Administrative Affairs Committee who voted last week to forward a recommendation to the council that interim city attorney Tammy Palomino no longer hold the job temporarily and that Dallas not hire a search firm to consider anyone else. The committee made up of Tanel Atkins, Kara Mendelson, and Jesse Moreno suggested the council consider the permanent appointment at a meeting within the next 30 days. Palomino has been serving in that role since February when Chris Queso decided to pursue retirement effective immediately. Yeah, code words. <laughs> um, so, <clears throat> you know, I've, I've been working on getting uh, a change at that position for um, over a year by the time they finally let Chris go. I mean, by the time he finally departed totally of his own free will. Decided to pursue um, other professional opportunities. And uh, I, uh, it, so the, the, the plan I had always had, and the, so there are two levels of criticism of Chris Queso. One is he had a series of high profile blunders um, that many members of council did criticize him for. Um, Council does not like the way poker rooms went. Um, council doesn't like the way the um, the strip club litigation is going. That you know, um, and you know, full disclosure, my my uh, beloved firm Shields Winnips represents all those people. Um, and it, it, there were several things where they just felt like he had not given them. He had not operated in the manner they would have expected their lawyer to operate in. Um, the second line of criticism is that Queso was merely the titular head of a department that had uh, problems throughout. And that has always been what I have told council members. Um, so the idea was never to get rid of Queso for the, for the, for getting rid of Queso in and of itself, whatever, personal detriment he was bringing to the job. Um, I have always thought that that department needed a real reorganization. And Tammy Palomino is a very fine lawyer and a very smart person. Um, it's not really a knock on her at all. It's just that I don't anticipate that some of the sloth, uh, some of the sloppiness um, that is, if you ask anybody in the city, just regular city employees, where the delays are being caused, it's always in the city attorney's office. Stuff goes to the seventh floor and just 
stays there. It just stalls out, yeah. you know? And then there are other instances where uh, stuff comes back with unreliable or and sometimes unhelpful advice. Um, they do have people who need to go. This is not the forum where I'm going to give a list of those people, but I do have that list. And it's not a list that I just like developed on my own. Um, these, the, there, are, there are people operating at medium to high levels of authority in the city attorney's office who frankly should not be employed by us. Um, and I hope I'm wrong. Um, Tammy is very smart, as I mentioned, and maybe she is going to be absolutely on top of this. But I am very worried that we have just moved the deck chairs. Which doesn't seem great. Well, and I, I guess to me, and I don't know, and I, I know that there are costs associated with hiring search firms, but, you know, is there anything wrong with having her apply for the job, doing a national search? If she's Absolutely the best candidate, the hire her. But this seems to be an important job, right? Or this is an important job, and I would think that you want to make sure that you're getting the absolute best person for the job. And again, not saying that she's not that, but it seems like we could have at least gone through the process. Yes, part of the problem is that the process, they went through the process twice last time and got no good candidates, which is how Chris Queso got the job. But the problem there is that they're letting TC pick the search firm, which is something I've pointed out to them for over a year now, including a proposal from myself and one of my search firm clients to do the goddamn search for them. And they keep trying to pay these municipal search firms. I'm sure you saw this when you were on council. There are these municipal search firms that yeah. charge a fraction yeah. of what market rate is for a real executive search. Well, you're getting what you paid for. If you're only going to pay $24,000 for somebody to go find you the best city attorney. Might as well just go to Indeed or Monster.com. It would be way better. Most of these council members probably have yeah. lawyers in their Rolodexes who would be better choices. Yeah. So I don't know. That's very frustrating to me. I, I hope I'm wrong. It's enough, We're just going to put that on the end of the long list of shit I hope I'm wrong about. <laughs> uh, and, built... and sincerely, best of luck to Tammy. If she, if she, if she is more of a fix-it person than I think she is, then we're all going to be grateful for her. She will be the first, if she's approved and made permanent, she will be the first female city attorney since Madeline Johnson in 2005. Indeed. Other things that are on the docket. Philip. What else did we have? We had the uh, Hotel else? Cabana. The Cabana Hotel. Oh, yeah. Just an update on this. Um, it's going to council on the 27th. We've asked for... A $41 million TIF award. Um, this is we being Sycam Sycamore? This is me and Sycamore. Me representing Sycamore. Yeah. I'm not I'm not in the project. Although, maybe I will be one day. Um, since I've represented this building for four years now. Through two different owners. Um, the uh, <clears throat> It's the highest scoring low income housing tax credit project. Um, at least in the region and maybe in the state for this kind of uh, development uh, this last year, which means Sycamore has done that two years in a row, gotten the high score, um, which, you know, we're doing, we're doing the real stuff. Like, re this is seriously affordable housing. Um, the TIF board last week uh, turned us down and 
you know, I'm just going to characterize the commentary we got. You could just like shorthand it by saying double birds to you. Mm. And what we discovered is that uh, the board members who are um, related to, or in some cases employed by, some of our neighbors who want the TIF money for themselves are apparently operating in self-interest. So a little bit of a bummer. Um, And it's kind of an ethics issue. Should TIF boards be populated by people who can benefit from their votes? Because we have a specific carve-out in the ethics code for TIF boards. Which maybe we shouldn't. Mm. Why? Why should TIF boards be Can't controlled by the property ethics. owners in the TIF district yeah. instead of just like normal people with ethics and shit? Um, so that was disappointing. But the housing department, actually the econo- economic development department, housing is also signed off on this. But EcoDev is really pushing it. They're taking it to council on the twenty seventh. It's going to be 180 units of deeply affordable housing, 50% of which are going to be either at the 30%, the 50%, or the 60% level of uh, area median income, which means, you know, some apartments that rent for four to $500 a month. Um, this is design district, right? Is that where? Design district yeah. TIF. The Cabana is this great old hotel, um, super mid-century aesthetic. It's in this concrete lattice curtain um, that's very distinct. Um, and, you know, the fucking Beatles stayed there. It's, it's got some history. <clears throat> and a lot of the terrazzo in the, in the entryway is still intact, and we're going to preserve it. It's going to look and great. And prisoners stayed there, too, right? Uh, I first went to the cabana <laughs> when I was riding along with uh, Fire Station 18's ambulance. Um, um, uh, the tagline for Fire Station 18 is always rolling. Nice. It's the highest utilization ambulance in the city's fleet um, with uh, paramedics who whose main complaint was being overworked, which they were. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, I went there when it was a pre-release facility for Lou Starrett. And uh, we went to treat an inmate who had fallen and if you can hear fallen, the way I'm saying it, it has air quotes around it. Mm. Um, because if you are injured fighting at the pre-release facility, you go back to loose steric. Ah. But if you fall, you're fine. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that's how things happen in, in jail, kids. Uh, it's not a place you want to go. So um, fast forward, one of my clients bought it from the county at a very good price and try to convert it into a hotel and has decided that's not the best thing and has flipped it to one of my other clients um, and apparently flipped me with it, uh, which is fine. I enjoy both of these people. Um, And uh, we're going to do a bunch of deeply affordable housing over there. Um, And the TIF board's concerns to me sounded like uh, we'd rather have the money for ourselves and the design district TIF has not been well utilized. Like, there has not been a lot of appetite to build affordable housing over there. Um, so, in addition to you know trying to propose a project that's very good for the design district, we also did our research on its compliance with its duty to affirmatively further fair housing under the HUD rules, and it is worse than downtown was in 2014 
when HUD sued us the last time. So it's, it needs this project, and this project fixes all of that. Uh, the good news is, the great Omar Narvice is the council member for that district, and he is very supportive of the project, and I'll be making the rounds to support that. But if that's a, uh, if that's a project that's meaningful to you, you might want to reach out to your council member and just let them know that the Sycamore Strategies Cabana project is something you, you want to see. That is, uh, yeah, good, a good update. Exciting news. Um, other things that came... It's mostly like exciting Philip Kingston news. news. But, but whatever, it, it's going to help people, I, mean, I if, promise. Yeah, and a, yeah, more affordable housing we think is good. A building that is no, not being used for things, being used for things. Also well, it was, thing. it was being used for some things that you don't want. Well, okay, yeah. Which, uh, we, yeah, never a good thing. Because um, when, the, when the inmates moved out... Um, a lot of other people moved in. It took about two years to build a good enough fence to keep them out. <laughs> the um, other thing that is going on, so on what today is the 18th. the 18th. So Wednesday, council will approve the budget. That is what I hear. They made some minor amendments. Um, the... <clears throat> The, the, the budget process we've described before is being basically a joke, but council did manage to pass a couple of amendments that on a um, on an order of magnitude scale um, round down to zero. Mm. Yeah, not a whole lot going on. There was, uh, I saw this morning, I think it was, was Paula uh, Blackman sort of... Uh, pushing back against the mayor and Kara's dire claims about the budget situation while also still supporting some of the cuts. Um, she did do the math, which I think is always helpful of, you know, in her district of a median home value of $500,000, you know, what Kara and the mayor are proposing is a property tax rate that would save the taxpayer $217. To the detriment of losing hundred or tens of millions of dollars in city projects, which you know I feel like probably not a great trade-off for two hundred seventeen. I saw Baz dollars. make the same point today on social media. I think <clears throat> what you're hearing from them is where the council is really. They do want to cut the rate a bit. Um, that's appropriate if you can still fund the things people want. Cutting the rate is a great idea because you know there's no need to overtax people. But, you know, as we've discussed, go look at your property tax bill and tell me which part you're mad at. It isn't the city. Yeah, it's the schools. And Paula mentioned that in her column this morning, too, talking about that, you know, it's mostly the city taxes that, or that the state's failure to fully fund schools has left, you know, property tax bills being exorbitant, but not because of school or city, because of the school schools. districts. Um, and the state's inaction. The mayor in his sort of weekly email um, yesterday uh, encouraged his supporters to uh, continue pushing for cuts in uh, the budget, um, saying that Dallas has arrived at a time for choosing, um, asking the question, is Dallas going to choose to add higher city property taxes on top of inflation and higher interest rates? 
and make owning a home or running a business in Dallas even less feasible for those who live and work here? Or is Dallas going to choose to hold the line on spending and collect no more city property taxes this year than we did last year from our residents and businesses? 13 to two. He, <laughs> that's your prediction for yes. the, uh, the approval. Um, he also included in his link, uh, or in his email, a link for folks to email their council folks to let them know that uh, you know better to do with your hard-earned money than those elected bureaucrats at City Hall know how to do with it. Well, that's attractive to some people, that kind of argument, but it's well, totally false. And the thing, and I think we <laughs> talked about this the last time, that I feel like it's been missing. I promise that the dumbest council member knows better how to do the city budget than anybody Random right Joe off the street. Uh, the, the thing, too, that I, I think that has been missing from, you know, that argument, and I wish that folks would ask them questions when the mayor and Kara go on these long speeches about the need to cut funding is to say, well, okay, show me what you propose cutting. You know, they, they talk about these vague terms of, well, we need to become more efficient and we need to eliminate these positions that are ghost positions that aren't going to be filled. But to, to make the requisite cuts that they're requesting to the rate, you're talking about getting rid of services. You know, so specifically, you know, are we talking about not having the pool open seven days a week? Are we talking about shutting down libraries, you know, closing, uh, you know, only mowing the park every other week? Like what specifically do you propose that the city do in order to make these budget cuts? And if that's the time for choosing that you're giving people, would you rather pay $217 a year in property taxes or would you rather the library be open the same number of hours that it is currently open? Right, R rhetorical. <laughs> right, that's a rhetorical question, and I think we think people know the answer. But I, I guess that's what I, I wish that they wouldn't let the mayor and Kara get away with this. Is again, show me what's the what do you want to cut? You talk about the well, need to okay. Cut. Are they letting the mayor and Kara get away with it? <clears throat> that's well, the question. Not. Who's yeah. they, yeah. and what are they letting them get away with? Yeah. They is media. <clears throat> so media, yeah. sorry, I, I normally don't like. To smash the media, although I guess I've done a lot of that in this episode. Um, <clears throat> this is a story only when you report it as a story. Yeah. And then if the end of the story is a 13 to 2 vote, yeah. you need to learn a lesson about reporting what the mayor or Kara say. Yeah. Yeah. As opposed to, I guess, making the editorial board of the morning news happy, who were, you know, also eager to shake their finger at that. Texas Senate for acquitting Ken Paxton. Now, I don't recall seeing editorials asking Before. for him to be convicted. <laughs> <laughs> Weighing in ahead of time, but it might have done some good. It seems yeah. to be, uh, yeah, that's a much easier tax uh, or, you, you know, way for them to take it is, well, what's something to have done? Boy, they really messed up. And I want folks to watch. I guarantee you that they will endorse those local senators who voted to acquit. Indeed, they will. Yeah, the next time that they're on. Tan Parker, you know, he will be endorsed by the Dallas Morning News. Bob Guaranteed. Hall. Bobby Hall, yes. Almost guaranteed. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, yeah, we're just mad at the media. Do better. Yeah. Morning News editorial. <laughs> well, the media, I think this is a story we could probably cover on local politics. The, the Morning News reported catastrophic losses in its most recent... Um, earnings report and um, mm. um, it uh, it's getting worse um, so 
they issued voluntary buyouts for all of their senior people. Actually, I think anybody can take advantage of it, but it's it's structured to get rid of the old people, which may or may not be discrimination. I don't know. They're expensive. Um, the uh, it, it, it and so the question it, the question it raises, as it always does, is what is the future of for-profit news media? Mm. I kind of think it's very small. I think the New York Times, the Washington Post, the LA Times, um, the network news, maybe CNN, maybe Fox, maybe MSNBC, maybe those are the, the ones who can be long-term viable. I don't know that a daily in a city of 1.3 or 1.4 million people is a for-profit enterprise. I think maybe the right structure there is non-profit enterprise and maybe the best possible structure is an employee-owned non-profit news enterprise. Well, that sounds like socialism, Philip. I don't know. It's 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 ownership. Ownership that's by true. people who are involved in the industry. Yeah. It's private property. Yeah. It's not I, I mean I don't I don't think we're talking about the I think, what, I think the what I'm trying to find is a way to have that industry vibrant and operating without being dependent on the government, yeah. which also seems very bad, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and and that is sad because I am a proud Morning News subscriber. As am I. I read it every day. I do think that they do, other than the editorial page, a pretty good job of letting folks know what's the, going on. The, the new, look, the newsroom, I think, has been <clears throat> more effective and better in the past, but given the resources that they have, I think they do a pretty good job. Now, this, Everton Bailey is becoming quite a good signal reporter. The month-long fentanyl thing, I don't know how I feel about quite yet. I mean, I, you know, fentanyl, not I, great. I stopped learning but in the first paragraph. I was like, wait, this is nothing new. Yeah, like, like, I've heard this for a while. Fentanyl, a problem. Most of it comes in through legal ports of entry. People are dying. A little bit of it can kill you. We have no idea what the hell we're doing to stop it. And oh, by the way, the legislature and the governor didn't allow to pass testing strips so that we could make sure that people who are using drugs don't die from fentanyl. That is a bizarre story. Like that one, that one lots of people thought would be the one that the Republicans would go for. Yeah. Because it, it was so clearly <clears throat> aimed at just harm reduction. It was not like decriminalizing. It yeah. wasn't, it wasn't no, lowering really don't penalties. Care. It's how my, uh, you know, when I lived in Indiana, our former governor, Mike Pence, you know, enabled a AIDS outbreak, an HIV outbreak in Indiana by opposing uh, the needle exchange program. I, re I recall this. It was great, yeah, because well, if you let people have needles that are clean, they'll keep using drugs. And it's like, hey, Mike, they're using drugs anyway. They're addicted. You know, <laughs> we've, we've talked about this before. Um, you are going to heaven, 100%. Like, there's no question. We know that's going to happen. I don't think it's real. <laughs> but Mike Pence really does, and he is going to hell <laughs> if it happens to be real. 
you don't think when the role is called up yonder, Mike will be there? Uh, what was the? Uh, it's it's uh, it's not just gospel. It's it's Jesus's words about um, there are many um, who are. What is the wording? I'm I'm blanking on this. There are many who are who who hold themselves out to be righteous. Yes. Who will not be called. Yeah. Right. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Mike, what a guy. I just solved the problem by not holding myself out to be righteous. <laughs> uh, other things going on in Dallas. Appointment television this weekend. One of the final editions of the Battle for the Iron Skillet will be played. There are only three more battles for the Iron Skillet to watch for some time. Well, unless Colorado actually destroyed TCU's ego, this will not be that much of a battle, do you think? You never know. Uh, the game is over in Fort Worth. I would assume that TCU would be the heavy favorites. I don't know. If do you we, have a line? Let's play guess the line. My guess on the line is... The line will have been reduced a little bit because of the Colorado loss and because SMU boosters are very dumb betters. They they also raised $100 million in seven days after joining the ACC. Oh, true. Forgot about that because they're going to owe a lot of fucking money to stay in the ACC. Yeah. Um, and they don't get any TV money for 10 years? Correct. Uh, yeah, good deal. Um, <laughs> uh, that line is... Fourteen and a half. So I was going to say nine and a <clears> half. <throat> the live odds today, uh, six and a half. Whoa! Let's bet six and a half, dude. I'm betting. I'm betting SMU. <clears throat> you think that they're going to bring it in? I mean, no, no, no. I'm you're not, gonna I'm you're going to hammer TCU. Hammer the uh, the over six oh, and a yeah. half. Yeah, the over plus yeah plus six TCU. And a, yeah, six and a half. Uh, the point spread there, uh, the over under is 63 and a half points. The game Saturday at 11 o'clock at Ammon Carter Stadium in Fort Worth. Uh, that line, the, the over under line feels really high, but also maybe the, those two teams. I haven't watched SMU for one minute, so maybe those two teams have no defense. We uh, feel, I mean, Red Lashley, as the representative of Dallas, the mayor did fail in his quest to get. SMU into the SEC, but has found them in that, the that was, ACC. Dude, there was nothing windmill about that quest. <laughs> Don, Don Quixote. That would be a good nickname. Speaking of the mayor, I, I, we hate on the mayor a lot. Maybe we should get, we should, we should have a graphic artist. I know a couple. Maybe we should have a graphic artist put Don Quixote on top of the SMU pony. Oh, I thought, yeah, Peruna. That would be nice. <clears throat> Uh, the mayor, I, I don't like to criticize people for their sartorial choices, but... Uh, yeah, we, we already have one journalist who handles all of that in Dallas. Now, the mayor, uh, there was those pictures going around of him earlier in the, in the month wearing a dumb hat uh, around all the time. And then the latest thing I've seen him is pulling off this leather sport coat, and he looks ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. 
And I just want the he's man. going through some stuff. <laughs> he's, he's just I just going want through him some to stuff that like we're not going to cover on this podcast because honestly, it's beneath mention. But he's going through some. Stuff. I just want the mayor to dress like a normal person. You know, give I want me, him to dress like he feels good about himself. <laughs> you know, give me I don't know a blue suit, an Oxford shirt, and a tie. You know, I mean, you don't have to wear strange things all the time. You don't even have to. Don't even wear a tie. You know, just dress like a normal. Functioning human being. Or dress like a crazy person and be effective. <laughs> One of the two. Like, are you furniture who looks good or are you doing shit? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but, John Fetterman's not exactly a fashion Boy, plate. people are very angry about that. So angry. Are you angry or about John Fetterman wearing his outfits or Lauren Boebert being fondled at a play? Hot take? Yeah. Neither. Neither. Yeah, no, I don't, I could, I really could care less about either of them. I really wish that camera didn't exist because I didn't really want to see that. (laughs) But if, if she's like fooling around in a theater, it sounds pretty fucking normal. I don't know. (laughs) Like she's very not normal when she talks. And then if she's like, if there's some hope that her humanity still has a tether to reality, but here's the other thing that people are not being fair about with Laura Bober because she's so execrable. So there's a lot of reasons to hate her. Yeah, I got it. She was abused as a child. She has a horrible history. Yeah. Like she has reasons for the way she is. Yeah. And I don't think she knows that those are operating the way they are. Mm. But I'm not going to pile on some lady whose mom was goddamn awful to her yeah and so and somebody who may have been abused as a as a young person you'd just rather her not hold office yeah no 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 that's no 100% (laughs) and if you're angry at what she says yeah you know at CPAC or on the floor of the house then yeah and she shouldn't be in office yeah but also but also like you know the if if there's a is if there's a seed of humanity in there, and it looks like from that activity that there might be, yeah, then I don't know. You're okay with that? I yeah. I you know it's just it's not something that it's not something that we used to talk about, and the reason we didn't use to talk about it is because it doesn't fucking mean anything. Yes. Look, she's like she should go on dates. Yeah. I'm friends with another a different female single member of Congress. Actually, two. And they go on dates. And I don't want to be on their dates. Yeah. You don't care what I, happens. I don't I don't yeah. want to I don't want to report unless they, they just need to share something with me. But that was they the don't I, they certainly don't want to share something with me. Other things to uh, to think about. DFW Sports Minute. The wings are in the playoffs. And look amazing. They play again uh, tomorrow night at eight o'clock against Atlanta. Uh, and they could win that playoff. They'll have two chances to close out that playoff series. The Mariners have a very uh, serious uh, couple series uh, against the Mariners coming up. The Rangers? Uh, yeah, the Rangers, pardon me, against the Mariners this week. Um, important to, to watch as well. And the Cowboys just continue demolishing everyone. This may be the year. The Morning News had a headline that said... Though not flashy, Dallas offense gets it done. And I'm like, 
70 points in two games is not flashy in what way? Yeah, I don't know quite what people's... I guess, you know, they feel like sometimes when the offense settles for field goals instead of touchdowns, but, you know, in many ways, this is they're doing what the Cowboys probably should have been doing all along with how good the defense is, is just letting Dak be... You know, game manager sounds pejorative, but... Letting it's, him, it's what they did his first yeah, letting year him be a game manager when he had his best year. Yeah, right. You know, they probably only need to score twenty eight points a game, right? Somewhere in that neighborhood. Given honestly, the if they get over twenty, maybe they're going to win. That's another fun line. So they play the Cardinals, who are awful this weekend, and the line in that is twelve and a half. In favor of the Cowboys. I think I would hammer the Cowboys. I might do that also. Hammer the Cowboys. If betting were legal in the state of Texas. my We in, could drive to Oklahoma and the, hammer the, the Cowboys. The internet is not <laughs> based in Texas. <laughs> There's some backbone elements here, but it, that's all that's too complicated yes. for this podcast. Yeah. Um, Anything yeah, else? I, I might do that. Well, okay, just back on the sports betting. Yes. Uh, friend of the show, you don't know him, but you're going to eventually. Um, Mason Brick. Ledoux, um, former uh, Post Malone manager, who now is a cattle rancher, nice, um, has started this season his own um, sports betting pick service. Okay. Uh, and he's up quite a bit. His picks have been reasonably good. Not as good second week as first week, but, you know... None of us get them all right. It's called Not the Worst Sports Book. And uh, I would encourage people who are inclined to care what the line is. Obviously, no Texans who would violate the law. No. You, you can go look at his. Until we make uh, gambling legal in Texas, maybe sometime. I thought it was going to happen this last session. I really did. Yeah. Too many Baptists, probably. Always. There, are too many. <laughs> there have been too many Baptists since the Anabaptists were founded. <laughs> Probably too many Baptists still in Texas. Maybe someday they will allow people to, to gamble. Who knows? I'll see you next time, Power. Yeah, take care. Wow.